Hello and welcome back to Decorum Green Connections. If you're listening to these podcasts in sequence, I must apologise for the gap between episodes. I've had a bit of trouble with the music and various other things. However, we're back on air as it were. As you can hear, we have some new music, written and performed by Will Wright, local Green Party member. Thanks very much, Will. Now, on to today's podcast. This episode is an interview with yet another fascinating local person. Paul Stanford is, amongst other things, a Green Parish Councillor in Great Galliston, an interfaith minister, a Druid and an LGBT activist. All this while working a full-time job in a hospital. In this interview, Leslie Tate asked Paul about three main subjects, politics, religion and sex. Leslie takes up the reins. Well, hi there, Paul. Um, I know that uh, you did actually do a blog for me and you had three main topics. That's politics, religion and sex. So I thought we'd do it in that order. So I'm going to ask you about politics first. Now, I know you're a parish councillor, so I'd like you to give us an idea of where and what you do and what you're involved with in that. Yeah, so a few years ago, I put myself forward because I lived a a few miles away from Great Gadsden Parish, and I was very interested in becoming a um, parish councillor. And so I put myself forward, got interviewed, then there was an election process, and I got elected Um, and co-opted, which meant that basically no one stood against me. So I was co-opted into the local council, where for the last few years I joined the rest of the councillors, and we sort of discuss issues, let's say, from um, tidying up uh, walkways um, when it gets overgrown to putting a new bus stop in, that kind of thing. And But it's non-political in the sense that in our parish um, we're not actually part you don't have to be part of any political party you're a parish council in the sense and councillor in the sense that you are representing the people of of that place rather than be involved in any political party at that level i'm interested you said that you know because of course you're a member of the green party yes and i know paul harris is on the same group and he's a member of the green party that's right and i know you've had quite a significant role in building or founding the present uh, Decorum Green Party. So do you want to talk about your Green Party background? Yeah. Well, I, I was a member of the Labour Party in the 90s. And in 1999, I think I left the Labour Party, um, mostly because I lost um, uh, a belief in new Labour. And, um, and I held quite a lot of sort of a socialist foundation and and you and by then in 1999 i fully realized that it, it it wasn't going back to old labor ways it was pretty much a uh, uh, another conservative party in my belief so um i looked at other political parties and i did look at liberal democrats but they didn't quite, they weren't radical enough for me and and then of course i looked at the green party and i thought well I probably won't become the next prime minister by joining the Greens, but at least I could be something part of something that you can believe in. And um, and so I joined the Greens and found the vast majority of its policy the same as what I felt inside. So, for instance, things should be recycled. Um, uh, we shouldn't be throwing plastics into our oceans. We should be caring for um, animals as well as people, the planet and people, um, basically. And uh, 
and the fair distribution of resources. So yes, so that's why I joined the Green Party. And I gather that you were in Friends of the Earth mm. and you had quite a lot of people who were both in the Green Party and Friends of the Earth. Yes, that's right. So um, in 1999, again, I lived in Torquay at the time. I joined both Friends of the Earth and the Green Party. And then I moved back to Hertfordshire. I moved to Tring and I joined the local Tring Green Party. And and um, eventually I became chairman, and um, which then widened to Decorum Green Party, including Hemel Hempstead, where I then moved again. And um, we'd be building the Green Party up slowly and to the point where we're quite an active membership now. And um, I'm, I'm vice chairman now. And so I only get called up when the chairman can't make it. And then I take the place. But otherwise, um, it's quite an active group, which is brilliant to see. A lot of the effort I put in has paid off. And um, you told me in the car on the way here that um, you actually got to a point where you had to make a choice between working for the Friends of the Earth group to build it or the Green Party, and you chose the Green Party. Yes. And would you like to just explain why? Yes, well, I'm a, I'm a deep supporter of both Friends of the Earth and the Green Party and, have, and still am for many years. Um, what the problem was is that um, for some reason we were losing membership in, in both groups. Um, a lot of the sort of elderly... Um, Vanguard um, were retiring from being active and and there weren't new people joining and so one group or the other and there's only so much you can do and I thought well Friends of the Earth is very important it's vital and as a national organization it does wonderful things but as a local group you're always kind of reacting to whatever bad news has come up and you can't. And although yes, you can fight it, and sometimes we win, but ultimately you're always reacting. Well, if you get elected as a Green Party politician, you can actually create um, structure and do things that benefit people and planet. So instead of always reacting from bad news, like for instance, when the Conservative Party came into power, they wanted to privatise all our forests off. You know, if a Green Party was in power, that would never happen. Um, I know you believe that state power should be separated from organised religion. Yes. Do you just want to explain your yeah. views on that? I'm, I'm a secularist, so yeah. I don't believe that um, religion and politics should be in the same house, if you like. They must be separated. Otherwise, you get things like theocracy. Mm. And theocracy means dictatorship. It means where you have one belief system ruling over another. Mm. All religions and, and political philosophies are just the same. They react in the same ways as part of being human. Mm. Um, is that there are things that we do that may influence the state, but they shouldn't be running it. Because if you get one over another, then you're going to end up with dictatorship again. So you must have it divorced, must be separated. And I, I don't like at the moment how the Church of England is still so, so central. It's important that there's a Church of England for those who want it, but not to be such an estate um, position. It must be separated properly. We're kind of a mid-secularism here. We're not quite fully secularist. Um, and that's what I do believe in. Even if the Druids suddenly, you know, had a lot of power again, like they did in the ancient world, um, I'd still be against that. Because the moment you get people in power, they will corrupt. 
and you end up with theocracy again. No matter how much the spirituality may be compassionate and kind, it will end up just the same as the others, abusing its power. Right. So to take you back to the Green Party, mm. just imagine, um, as I do actually, that particularly because of climate change, the Green Party will have to take power. Mm. And it's almost inevitable. It's only a question of time. That's how I see it. How do you think the Green Party will shape up to those difficulties of, of corruption and, and, and dicta possible dictatorship under the pressures that they probably have got to deliver something quite radical about our society? Yes, I think that is a really important issue. The first one is to um, just to be aware that this mm. happens and talk about it mm. and not hide things. Often what people do mm. is when there's corruption, oh gosh, the last thing we want people to do is to find out. Mm. Be honest and say, this is what's happened. Let's try not do this again. Because mm. if you hide things, mm. then it just fosters more of that kind of behavior later on. Mm. I think because the Green Party doesn't have party whips as well, mm. you're not sort of whipped into having a particular... Um, you're forced to vote a particular way. Mm. Although Greens hold a certain ideas, they can be quite different in spectrum, not too much different from each other. Um, and it allows you to have that freedom. So I, I feel that when you get people forced to behave in a certain way, that creates the power, that power situation. But if people have the freedom to vote on their conscience, then that lessens it to some degree. Um, also, when you take power, um, the more democratic the systems are, uh, the more it safeguards. And at the moment, we don't have a full democratic system. Yes, we have a parliament and so on, but we don't have proportional representation. We don't have democracy in our businesses. So, for instance, if businesses were democratic, like cooperatives, then everyone has a share in their workplace. Then profits go back to the community and, and the area. Um, so that's democratization to things like um, uh, nationalized industries should be more localized and democratic. So, for instance, let's vote for your chief exec at your local hospital. That will make them more accountable to the people that the hospital is serving, for instance. Um, so there's whole whole democratic issues. And what is democracy? How democratic can we be to stop corruption? And, and it is engaging the community and people. And people often so busy working that they're tired and the last thing they want to do is, is go to a political meeting. That's why you hardly see the majority of people at these. It's only hardened activists that can be bothered to turn up after a day's work. And that is the problem, isn't it? Because it becomes a narrow set of people who are working too hard and uh, they have objectives and, and maybe they short, take shortcuts. Mm. Um, so do you think there are methods by which the Green Party can become a bigger, a bigger party because if you look back there was a point where the Labour Party had 4 million members you know when you go right back do you see any, any possible ways that we can extend the membership mm. I think that as climate change becomes more and more mm. apparent mm then when people start seeing environmental disasters, mm. you'll find more and more people will start thinking, oh gosh, I need to get involved in this. And they will look to the Green Party and other parties that are becoming greener because of the situation, but the Green Party specifically. And unfortunately, if things are going good, then you, only a core 
sort of people who have a, mm. an intellectual or a personal experience of the environment tends to get involved. It's only when disasters start happening that more people come along, mm. unfortunately. But um, mm. And the way the environment works is that it's, it's a long process. Mm. And if you have short-term memory, this isn't very good for the environment. And uh, unfortunately, a knee-jerking at the end is a train going off the cliff and not enough time to stop the train itself. There's one other sort of politics area that I know you you are involved in or have been involved in, and that's Unison. That's Do you want right. to say something about that? Yes, yeah, so um, I got a job in um, about October or November in the year 2000 at um, West Hearts Hospitals Trust. And... Um, I was approached by a trade unionist and um, Unison, and um, I joined as a representative almost immediately and was involved in a lot of issues around equalities and health and safety initially. Then over the years, again, I um, put myself forward to become chairman and I chaired the branch about 10 years. So I've got quite a lot of experience in, in trade union work. But in the end... Um, I sort of um, stood down to let new people in because I got a bit tired in it. And, and it does make you very angry a lot of the time. Oh. And I wanted to have more happy thoughts. Oh. So I'm quite oh. glad to hand it over. But oh. it did teach me a lot about right. trade union relations. Right. Now, I'm going to move on to religion. Yes. And the first thing I'm going to ask you about is that I know that you're the chair of the Interfaith Group in, yes. in Decorum. Yes. And do you just want to explain what you do and who's there and what that's about? Yeah, so when I moved um, to Hemel Hempstead, um, I wanted to know if there are any interfaith groups in the area. And there were two groups, and one of them approached me um, first, and I joined them. And after a few years, um, I became their chairman. And, um, and I then invited the people from the other group to come along to our events and we built friendships and then two groups became one group and I co-chaired it with the Devon um, the Reverend um, David Lawson and who retired a year ago from the post but um, we've been doing lots of good stuff so we got people from all different faiths we've had um, loads of different talks from chaplains from mental health to hospitals to police We've done um, various visits to various temples all around London, from Jain, Hindu, Buddhist, um, Jewish, Christian, you name it. Um, we've been there and had talks about different faiths and issues and problems. And, um, and it's going strength to strength. And only recently in the Interfaith Week in November last year, um, uh, well over 100 people turned up, including the deputy mayor and, uh, and a speaker from the Interfaith National Organisation. Uh, Dr. Crabtree to talk about interfaith across the country and how vital it is that local towns are doing the same sort of work. Right. I mean, do you, does the interfaith group have services or religious events? Um, we mostly do talks. Right. Um, and we have um, speakers who come along and talk. Um, and we had one guy. Uh, Dr. Walters talking mm -hmm. about robots and the future. Oh, so we talk about all sorts of issues. Right. Can robots ever become sentient? That kind of topic. Right. To also things like um, Chinese religion. What is it? And we had mm -hmm. a lady who came along and spoke about Confucianism, Taoism mm -hmm. and Buddhism, Chen form. 
and it was very interesting. But we also deal with other issues like um, uh, how we can help the local community. So we're going to visit dens soon and, and look at things like how we can help uh, as a group with people who are homeless and stuff like that. Um, but we also... Um, have speakers in to talk about difficult issues, like, say, for instance, in Palestine, um, between Jews, Christians and Muslims and so on. Mm. Um, so we do quite a lot of different types of stuff. We have done spiritual type ceremonies. Um, being an interfaith minister as well, it, um, it helped me to formulate a ritual where all different religions could come together and celebrate something, both their own individual traditions as well as the sort of a universal uh, underlining meaning so for instance we did something on kindness and hope mm. um, compassion these sort of things you find in all religions or none and um, but binds us all together to something positive well that's really interesting now can i take you just back a bit and about your own spiritual development mm. so i gather you 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 grew up in a what you've described to me as a loosely engaged roman catholic environment yes um, and then I think uh, you got very involved, perhaps, in Christianity, but, but you got dissatisfied. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. Um, well, I grew up Roman Catholic, but what I mean loosely engaged is that um, my mum would one moment take us all to church, and the next minute we never went. And then the <laughs> local priest would knock on the door and say, where have you been? And there I find myself back into church again. And oh. I remember a lot as a child, and I did like going. I liked mm. the the ritual, the frankincense, the um, when I was on my own, almost meditating, if you like, mm. with the sort of Christ-like image. Um, I wasn't interested in the theology or any of that kind of stuff, but I liked the ritual and the sense of seeking something within oneself. And um, so when I became a teenager, I when I was seeking my identity, um, I looked at, well, what is this Catholicism? So I went back to church and um, and I liked the ritual and I thought, you know, I could be see myself as a Catholic priest. But when I started to understand the theology where this is the only way mm. um, and a sense of a, of a one supreme God didn't resonate with me in the end. And, and also issues around my sexuality um, where the church doesn't particularly like um, people who are gay and there's a lot of gay people in it, um, I decided to leave. And um, I did look at Protestantism and it looked just the same to me. So I thought um, I had to look at something different. I needed something. And, uh, and Christianity just didn't do it for me anymore. Right. So you needed something. Mm. So you're going to have to tell us what was that thing <laughs> yeah. that you needed that you got? Well, my dad was delighted um, uh the possibility of me becoming an atheist like him. And although I didn't believe in, in a one God anymore, um, I still felt there was like, a bit like in Star Wars, there's a, a kind of force in nature that binds us all together. And I could feel it in my bones, if you like. And I was always quite an animistic child in a sense that I loved animals and trees and, and they sent, had a sense of personality and, and interconnection in nature. And I grew up a lot from my mum's interest in Greek mythology, so I read a lot about polytheism, if you like, from the Greek point of view. So it was only natural, really, that I found paganism, firstly. 
And secondly, um, I found out there was a local Buddhist monastery and I went there and there was the meditation, which reminded me when I was a Catholic of sitting quietly in prayer in the church. And it was the same sense of finding this, if you like, my soul in within. So um, what your main allegiance now is, mm. I believe, is, is you're a druid. Yes. And... Can you explain what you do as a druid, uh, what the ceremonies are like and, mm. and how the group behave and, and that sort of thing? Well, firstly, um, I joined a heathen organisation. Heathenism is the sort of Germanic forms of paganism from Scandinavia, Germany and old England, if you like. And you find things associated like the god Thor, rune stones and such things. And I got quite interested in heathenry. Um, my ancestry is quite mixed. Um, I have a mixture of um, from the Celtic side, if you like, Cornish, Irish. Um, I've also got German, French, um, English, and even Jewish somewhere back uh, in the generations. And so I was quite interested in, in learning about ancestral paganism. And Druidry was also one of them um, from the Celtic side, if you like. And, um, and both of those traditions I was very interested in. But Druidry took more and more a stronger appeal. And, um, and eventually I trained as a Druid through the Order of Bards of Eights and Druids in my early 20s. And around about 1999, um, when I moved um, back to um, Hertfordshire, I founded my own grove in 2000 called the Chilton Nemington Grove, which is like a, a parish church, if you like, a community. And, um, and since then we've been doing sort of ceremonies ever since uh, where I facilitate as a priest. Right, so let's just get this straight. Um, if you're a druid, that means you belong to the Celtic branch of paganism, is that right? You could say that, yes. Certainly British um, paganism, that's influenced by Celtic spirituality, mm -hmm. definitely, yes. And then when you say you've got a, um, a grove, mm. I think you, I, th I suspect this is, this means that you have a particular place in the woods that you meet. Right. Yeah, certainly a grove is yeah a, a circular of trees that people meet in a ceremony. Grove also means a community. Right. Um, another name for a grove is nemeton, which is, means temple, if you like. So right. the temple, the grove of the community is mm -hmm. the Chilterns and right. the surrounding areas, mm -hmm. and um, which is similar to like any kind of group, a, a sangha, a parish, whatever. Mm. But for us, it's um, uh, people who are inspired by druidry and uh, general Celtic spirituality. Not everyone's a druid. So in druidry, you have bards, which are poets, musicians, and storytellers. You have the vartes, which are or ovates, which are seers, um, healers, shamans. And then you have the druids, which are the philosophers, the ritualists, the spiritual leaders, if you like, the community. And um, But not everyone wants to train to be one of those sort of free um, arts. Some people just like to come along and celebrate the seasons and connect to nature in their own way, very much their own way. So you're an outdoor church? Yes, if you like, yes. And you're meeting in this this clearing in the, in the forest? Yes, sometimes we meet up in hilltops, by rivers, um, oh. but most of the time in woodlands. And how do, what actions or what celebratory kind of ritual, if, if, if any, do, yeah. do you actually carry out in, in these open-air situations? So we follow what they call the neo-pagan eightfold festivals, 
which are partly seasonal. Um, they connect with, for instance, the solstices and equinoxes through the year, but also the old Celtic fire festivals, um, which are known as Imolk, Beltane, Lunas and Samhain, which have old traditions with that time of year as you move through. So we celebrate those. Um, we meet in nature because where the stronger the diversity of, if you like, the natural um, life forces are, the more diverse, the more beautiful, the more spiritual a place is, the more deeply you connect to the sort, if you like, the earth resonance mm -hmm. that we're part of. I'm still going to ask you, ask you to tell us what exactly do people do? What then? do we do? Yeah. Right. Okay. So we would find the space and yeah. uh, where we tend to go back to the similar places. So yeah. a certain woodland we might like to go to. Yeah. We hold hands. That's what most people see is a circular of people oh, holding yeah. hands. Yeah. We have a, what we call the Druid's Oath, which is we swear by peace and love to stand heart to heart and hand in hand. Marco's spirits and hear us now confirming this our sacred vow, which means is that we hold each other hand in hand, representing us a circle mm. that no one is one above another. Mm. We all have our different gifts. We have our soul pathways. Yes, yeah, some of us trained as druids, some as bards and others who don't particularly taint in a particular art. But we all hand because we're all equal in spirit on the spiral path of life. Who's to say who's any greater than another? We're all on the same pathway. So we're all together, if you like, as a as a group of people with an intention of revering nature and the life forces. So we end heart to heart, obviously, because we're coming together as a community, but greater than that, because we're extending our, if you like, our empathy, our compassion for um, the intrinsic value in all other life forms, not just what humans regard as, um, uh, as, in as interest to them. We see everything in nature has value. Okay, so you're in the forest, and you're holding hands, Yes, and you take your vow. Yes. What happens next? What happens next, yes. So we call to the four winds, if you like. And the four winds in, in sort of the Celtic tradition um, represent, so when you look into the north, the sun and the moon goes down, it's the dark, if you like. And in Irish tradition, it's known as the place of battle. So you battle against your fears, um, the unknown, because how can you truly approach nature from a spiritual point of view if you have fear in your heart of the unknown? So you embrace the unknown. You let fear, you let fear go. And from the darkness, light is born, something new. So we don't fear the dark. We embrace the dark because it's the place where light comes from eventually. And then, if you like, the east wind is when the sun and the moon rises. So you get spring, if you like, as it moves throughout the winter. And that, in tradition, represents hope, um, renewal, regeneration. And you could say the spiritual lesson of that is to allow new things into your life. Because if you're not open to new communication, opening yourself, how can you truly approach nature from a heart-to-heart -heart point of view? Now, when the sun and the moon is in, its, in the south wind, if you like, in its zenith, um, the summer season, if you like, um, represents in the old Celtic tradition as rejoicing, the bardic rejoice. And that means that you take gratitude in the abundance of nature in life. And often we take things for granted in, in our lives. And so this teaches us gratitude. And if the west wind is then to let go because everything is born must also die. But and part of the tenets of Druidry is birth, death and rebirth. So you accept death, you accept letting go of things, because often we like to hold on to something 
which can be very negative to ourselves and others. So we learn to let go. And those are the four qualities, if you like, that we then blow the horn, an old Celtic horn in the four directions, and we all swear peace to that direction, mm -hmm. that peace of the qualities of those winds within us. Right, so you hold hands and you take the vow, then you blow the horn in the four directions, yes. and you say something for each direction. Yes. And then, is that led by you, or does everybody know the words, or do yes. you make it up as you go along, or what? But the, the power of ritual is that we all kind of know yeah. from the past rituals what we've done before. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There will be little differences because if different people facilitate it, yeah. which as uh, my yes. role as a druid is yes. to empower and enable yes, people yes, yes. to take part of the ceremony. Yes. Um, so a different person might have a slightly different style. But in the as the whole, mm. it's very similar because mm. it's a ritual. Mm. Yeah. And um, once we've done that sort of piece, we then enter the center of the circle, if you like, mm -hmm. which is honoring the very uh, bioregion, if you like, the very land we're in, mm -hmm. which is the spirit of the children. So we acknowledge that we're part of that land, not separate from it, but integrally part of it with other animals and trees and insects. We're all part of that same ecosystem. So we honor the children's spirit. So you, you, you had people, you know, holding hands and then... Um, making the vow and then mm. doing the trumpet and, and 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 saying appropriate things. Yeah. And then you said you entered the centre. Yes. Does that mean everybody physically moves in together? We all face. So we face into the four directions. Yes. We all face north, east, south, right, and west. Yes. Yeah. And then we will face into, if you like, we all hold hand circle again. Oh, yeah. And look to the centre. Right. And that centre, if you like, represents, if you like, the the ground of mm. spirit mm -hmm. where we are. And and embodying it and then the ceremony ends or, or continues or what no that's just the opening that's just the beginning well well <laughs> so you all know a set of moves if yes, you like yes and you've taken us through a few of them yes so how does it end if right so we then uh, in in celtic tradition you have what we call the world tree and that tree connects us, if you like, to the three realms in Celtic spirituality, which is connecting to the nature spirits, the life forces in trees and animals and rocks and rivers and so on. And we make offerings. Right. And that offering can come from anyone in the group, right. you or, or being a long-time member. And they might sing a song that they've written themselves. Okay. They might okay. play a violin. They could... Um, mm -hmm seek uh, a spiritual meditation and see what image comes up and they mm -hmm. share it. People make offerings of incense and all sorts of things, really. Mm. Then we honor our ancestors, both the near dead who mm. we've lost, and we might light a candle and incense or something, mm -hmm. and, and honor the ancestors of all the people of this country, all the different peoples that make up Britain from the ancient past to the modern day. So everyone's welcome, whether you've got Celtic ancestry or not. Um, to take part in that. And we also honour the divinities, if you like. Um, and people have different ideas of, of the divine. Some are pantheists, where they believe that everything in nature is divine and part of a whole. Some are animists, where they believe everything has a particular soul essence that's part of a greater sense of the soul, or the animal world soul. And then you get other people who might believe in very different things from almost atheism, agnosticism, to all sorts of theisms. But people have the right to understand that in their own way but in general we are sort of animistic pantheists or polytheists so i get the feeling that the ceremony 
is flexible. Yes. But probably fairly lengthy from what you've said. It goes on an hour. So oh, just an hour? Yeah, about an hour. All right. So it's... Um, Sometimes it does go longer, actually. <laughs> I have to admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it depends on the weather, to be honest. And we, yeah, we're out there in all might. weathers. Yeah, I thought so. And, um, I mean, do, then presumably the people who are involved in the ceremonies also are involved in social contact and friendships and support yes. of each other yes. outside the that event is, yes. that, is that right yes so or like, are they coming from a long distance maybe and then some people do um mm. we've got people coming from all over the children's which is quite a vast yeah. area so people from oh, it could be from high wickham to around dunstable luton it could be mm. hitchin area it, mm. all sorts of places really um the vast majority of people are sort of in the um, decorum area mm. so hamilton comes to tring mm. sort of place and um and we all get to a place where we have agreed let's say a year before and um, uh, and we meet there are there other contacts I, i'm i'm also asking i'm asking you two things at once but i'm mm. suggesting that um in most faith groups mm. there's a lot of solidarity and a lot of mm. help mm. for people who are ill or in need mm. and people are con well often quite constantly in contact outside the ceremonies is that yeah. at all the case yeah so as a about? community you make natural friendships yeah yeah and so people have their specific friendships but we also hold coffee mornings oh you do we right. have moots where we have speakers in we have pilgrimages where we go oh, to yeah. places like glastonbury or stonehenge or whatever oh, I see, right. and um uh, and also um, people do trainings, so we might do a particular workshop on a particular spiritual art. It could be anything from, I don't know, making corn dollies, which is the old folk oh, yeah. uh, um, offerings, yeah. to doing a musical thing together. So someone might bring a bower on, drum, um, an Irish whistle, or whatever, and people yeah. learn to play. Oh. So all sorts of friendships and different ways of expressing that. Right. Okay. Well, that's that's fascinating. Um, so can I just ask you about the sexuality aspect? Mm. And that is, yes, you're a gay man. Mm. Um, I mean, do you want to tell us anything about how you came out and, and, yeah. and how that developed? You know? Well, I came out at 18 um, and I told my dad, first of all, and he wasn't really surprised. And he was a sort of a biker hippie and sort of embraced it very quickly. So um, I was lucky there. It could have been the opposite. <laughs> And then I told my sister and then my mum and, and so on, which um, the vast majority of my family were fine about it. And a few were um, religious ones that didn't like it very much, but the majority were fine. Um, but um, I suppose one of the reasons why I left Catholicism was because of my sexuality, um, one of them amongst many. And, um, and so when I looked for different spiritual traditions, my sexuality was also part of it. I didn't find homophobia in druidry at all and i never really saw it in buddhism either and so th they were friendly and opening and supportive but that's only one level because i was also interested in what they believe and how they practice but one of the factors was my sexuality and in, in how i chose um different um looking in different faiths and i did look at other forms as well from mm. quakers to um all sorts of traditions taoism and so on but it was particularly pagans and Buddhists mm. that took my interest because it was so friendly towards my sexuality. Thank you, Paul. That was really, really interesting. You covered so much ground and um, I've got a lot to think about now after what you said. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
big thank you to Paul for talking about his life. And thank you again to Leslie for asking the questions. However, there is one outstanding question. Paul, how on earth do you fit all of these things into your week? More podcasts are in progress. Next up is a programme all about Transition Town Berkhamsted. We'll also be at Berkhamsted Live on the 14th of March, recording with performers and musicians there. Thank you very much for listening. See you soon. Thank you.